0: Talk about that the idea of God always being good to us. Take your Bibles and head with me to the old testament Second Samuel, Second Samuel, chapter fifteen. 16 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue in a series on the life of David in the Old Testament, Second Samuel, please, chapter 15. As we're continuing in this series, we've been discussing different things about David's life and now we're winding down into the second half of his life, into the latter years, but we're going to be talking about an incident today that was a very challenging incident for David, the king. In fact, other people like David have challenging situations. I remember reading an account not too long ago about a lady who had suffered a form of laryngitis sore throat that eventually led to the point where she couldn't speak. She finally goes to the doctor and the doctor said, what your voice needs is rest. And so beyond the medicine, he said, you need to rest your voice for several months And he said, you have to do this faithfully because the strain on your vocal cords has been so great. Several months of absolute quiet. So in order to communicate with her family, she had several children in the home and her husband as well. What she did is she resorted to writing notes. And she said, this note writing experience and unable to speak really, really caused me to do a lot of inner reflection and change some of how I, I operated and how I responded to situations. She said at the end of that 6-month period she noticed that there was a drastic change not only in her but in her kids. Her kids became much more sedate, quieter and not as much yelling and screaming in the home as there was before. Much more self-control. Said the other thing that really impacted her was her initial response to situations. She said that typically, she had her response to situations in the home was to get angry, get mad, get loud, and, and to say something that she might regret later on. But she said as she couldn't speak, she had to write her thoughts down. And she often wrote a hasty, nasty note. Which said, as I read the words that I had written before my family could hear it, I started to think I wouldn't want somebody talking or writing to me that way. And said for several weeks she was ripping up a lot of notes and not giving them and rewriting something that was more respectful, kind, that was getting to the point without attacking the person, addressing the issue, the problem. And she had made a drastic change even when she started speaking again. She realized she had learned to be far more cautious in her words than what she had been. It made an impact on her life. Well, we're talking about a situation in David's life where he's going to go to a period of time that is extremely difficult. No, he doesn't lose his voice. But what he does lose is even more of a, a hurt to him. And it brings about some great changes in his life. That's the story we're talking about this morning. Let me set the scene for what's happening. David has been the king for a number of years. And what has happened in the recent times that we've been studying, he's lost a couple children. There's been a death of a baby. There's been a death of his oldest born. That through another son killing him. Then with that other son who had committed the murder, he went away. He was apparently one of David's favorite kids of his 19. And he went away and David longed for him. David was broken hearted as we saw last week. David, David was moved because he couldn't be near Absalom. And then what happens is Absalom then moves back to Jerusalem and he's living there and he's an old enough son that he has his own family, his own children. And Absalom is back in Jerusalem but he and his dad aren't getting along. They've not even seen each other for two years that he was allowed to come back. They they have had no communication. And finally they have some communication but it's very, very public, very formal. David kisses him on the cheek as if he welcomes but they don't talk again. For for a period of time, and what happens is Absalom starts to be bitter towards his dad. He's an adult, but now he resents what his dad has done in the past. He's upset with his dad, and his resentment turns into bitterness. And so, what happens in this story is he plans to take the kingdom away from his dad he's going to conquer David's job he's going to remove it well that's what's mentioned here in the passage where we read in the account in chapter 14 we jump down to about verse 24 and we get to set the set the scene where it says Absalom returned to his own house and saw not his king's face and then we read in verse 33 Joab comes to the king told him when he had called Absalom he came to the king bowed down his face to the ground to him and the king kisses Absalom but that, that, things aren't resolved and as we said, Absalom all of a sudden starts doing things, to start pulling away the kingdom. We, we, we mentioned this last week. He is presenting himself in a public fashion, that he is popular, he is important. He says, and uh, the writer says this in verse 25 of chapter 14, "...in all of Israel there was none so much praised as Absalom for his beauty." From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And so he's attracting people by his appearance, and he works that. And when he pulled his head, cut his hair, for it was every year's end that he pulled it because his hair was heavy on him, therefore he pulled it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, that's 5 pounds of the silver, that he would say his hair is worth, and he is just, he's vain. But then his vanity increases. We read in chapter 15 down in verse 1. It came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. So when he came through town, you knew he was a coming. He just wanted the attention. And then what happens is as time goes by, he becomes more aggressive in trying to take away David's job, David's kingdom. It says in verse 2, Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate and it was so that when any man had a controversy came to the king for judgment Absalom would call unto him and he would say, of what city are you? And the man would say, whatever, the servant is of one of the tribes of Israel and Absalom would say, see thy matters are really important, they're good, they're right but there is no man who has been appointed or deputed of the king to hear you. And Absalom would go on to say, if I were made the judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came near to him to do him obeisance, he would put forth his hand, and he took him, and he kissed that man. And on this manner did Absalom to all of Israel that came to the king for judgments, so Absalom, what's your Bible read? He stole the hearts of the people of Israel he was ingratiating himself and he was he was trying to replace the dad his dad in the hearts of the people they would have more confidence in him and what happens in time is this breaks out into Open rebellion. We read in the next few verses. And it came to pass, now my King James reads forty. Many of you with different translations, it will read four, and that seems to be the rendering of the text. It came to pass after four years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. So he's pretending to dad to be very spiritual. I need your permission to leave. I'm going to go back to Hebron. Put you in your Bible. Make this note. Hebron was the capital of Israel until David moved the capital to Jerusalem. So the people of Hebron may still have a little bit of a problem because they lost their prominence and importance. And remember, Absalom is playing to people feeling important and prominent. So he says, I'm going to go to Hebron. For thy servant Vareva, while I was abiding in Geshur in Syria, and if the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve God." And the king said, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom now reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of the city of Jerusalem that were called to go with him. And they went out in their misunderstanding, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ohithophel, the Gilonite, David's chief counselor from his city, even from Gilo, where he was offering sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, and the people increased continually with Absalom. And so you have this situation that David, in response to now hearing, what is, doing, what is happening? His son is starting an open revolt against him. What does David do? We read in the next verses, there came a messenger to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. David said unto all of his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword." The king's servants said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth, all of his household after him. And the king left some people behind, some of his concubines. And the king went forth, and all the people after him, and tarried in a place that was far off, and all of his servants passed by. And then the story now continues that David is once again a refugee. Just like he was running from his, for his life from his father-in-law Saul, now after reigning for decades, his son is trying to kill him. He has to run for his life. He is taking off and leaving. This is a hard time for David. His own son is trying to kill him. That would be tough. It's a hard time for him to leave Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city that David has established as the new capital. He's been building. It's been his pride and joy. And now he's got to leave it. Leave everything that he has, that he has accomplished all of the treasures, all of the, the systems and the government that he's put in place. He's got to leave and as he's leaving you read in the text that they are mourning. That David as he's walking is walking barefoot. And he's got ashes going on his head and the head of the people with him. They are in great despair. They are crying. They are weeping. This is extremely difficult. And the trip that takes place in these few verses is 20 miles. And so they're traveling and they're walking at this time. And we read that it is a difficult trip because somebody comes to him and brings him food and they make the comment that we brought you food at the end of verse 2 of chapter 16 that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. We don't want you to be fainting. It says in verse 14 of chapter 16, the king and all the people that were with him came weary and they finally get to a place of safety and refresh themselves. This is a very difficult trip. And then he hears, David hears that his, his most trusted counselor, Ahithophel, that Ahithophel has joined with Absalom. But he trusted that guy. He was his chief of staff. He was his main counselor. And as David is going through this wilderness road trying to escape, he is greeted by Ziba. That may not remind you of the story earlier. Ziba was the servant of the household of Saul. And when, years ago, when Ziba was brought before David, Ziba, who David knew was a servant, was the, the um, master, or what we call the, uh, the one who would take charge of, of, of Saul's household. He asked, is there anybody left of Saul's descendants that I may show mercy to? And Ziba's the one that told him about Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. David had restored this lame man to a place of prominence, brought him to the palace, and David showed great grace to him, and he became one of David's sons. Well, while David is running away, Ziba shows up with some of these goods and this nourishment. And David says, where's your master Mephibosheth? The one that I rescued from Lodabar, the land of nothingness the one who I put back in the palace and gave everything and met his needs for years, where's Mephibosheth, the one that I showed grace to? And Ziba lies, but Ziba says to David, he says, Mephibosheth has gone to Absalom. David doesn't know any better. It's a lie. It'll it'll come out later on. But at this moment, David hears that Mephibosheth, his adopted son, the one that he had really showed, he's turned on him. So David is just one of these broken men at this moment that he is just, he's losing everything. He doesn't even know if he'll ever get back to Jerusalem. He doesn't know if he'll survive. And as he's traveling on this road to get away and he's mourning and weeping and his people with him are, they're hungry, they're thirsty. All of a sudden another guy shows up. Another guy shows up on the hilltop above David. They're, they're on the road below. And this other guy that comes, he starts, his story starts here in verse 5 of chapter 16. When David the king came to Behurim, behold, there thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah. He came forth and he cursed as he came. He cast stones at David and at all the servants of the king. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And this is what Shimei says. Come out, come out, or literally, if, if we put it in the way we would phrase it today. Get out of here, get out of here, you man of Belial. That's an interesting, he says, you a bloody man and a man of Belial. Very interesting the words he uses. And the Lord hath returned upon you all the blood that you shed of the house of, in Saul, in whose stead you now reign. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, you are taken in your mischief. Because you are a bloody man. David, you deserve all of this. Now, Shimei, who is saying this, he's, he's a relative, a descendant. He's a, a relative of the household of Saul. So he's in that same tribe. He is coming, and some say that Shimei is a coward. Some say that Shimei is a coward because he's, he's been feeling these feelings against David for a long time. But he's never come. He's never spoken to David. But now, he's on the hilltop and he's saying it. Personally, I think the guy is somewhat... Not a coward, because as he's yelling and cursing David, David has 600 men with him. 600 soldiers who are on his right hand and his left hand. And so for, for Shimei to attack David with stones, when David is surrounded by 600 soldiers, Shimei is one bitter man or one bold and bitter man. You know, He's a lunatic or he is really angry and emboldened by David's David's batty baddie turn of events. So he comes, and it says that he curses as he is coming. The word literally means treat with contempt, to just you know to gnash your teeth at. It's the idea to dishonor somebody with your words. Which and, and the words that he uses, he's basically saying you're wicked. You deserve what you've gotten. Now now think about this. David is already hurting. David is already miserable, and now you got somebody beating up on you with words. You know, the proverbial kick them while they're down. That's what Shimei is doing. Shimei is attacking David and he not only does it with, you know, that idea of words, but then he starts casting sticks and stones, may break my bones. He's casting them and the words. And what he says about David is is interesting. He says, you're a bloody man. So he's accusing David of what? Bloodshed. Of murdering people. And he says that you are a man of Belial. It can mean one of two things. It can mean both things. That you are a promoter of false gods or you're one who is really bad moral character. You know, you're, you're pagan in what you, how you conduct yourselves. So this guy's yelling this. And he's carrying on and he says, Yo, you're getting what you deserve because of what you did to Saul and Saul's family. You took the throne from Saul. You, you, you had attacked Saul and his family and you're getting what you deserve. And he keeps on doing it. The story says that as they're marching along and going along, he continues along the route yelling and screaming and carrying on. So David's got this situation. Now, let me, let me do one of those things. Politicians say a lot of things, yes? Okay. Have you ever listened to politicians say things? And then they do fact checks. Why do they do that? Because the politician is twisting things. Some of them do it, okay? Probably very few, okay? But they may twist things to support. Well, here's a fact check on Shimei. Shimei is saying things that fact check, he's twisted the story. Think about it this way, okay? Did David ever try to shed Saul's, uh, to kill Saul? No. What's the fact of the matter? Yeah, it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. David faithfully served and supported Saul. Who's the one that tried to kill who? Saul tried to kill David on several times, yes? Okay. Is Is it true that David had opportunity to kill Saul? Yes, but what did David do? Yeah, he spared his life. Remember, there's the two occasions, the one in the cave that David could have killed him, but he didn't, and the one when David was in his encampment and right next to him, and he didn't kill him. So if David, if it was true that he was against Saul, Saul wouldn't have survived. In fact, we go a little bit further. When Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle, David mourns them. David gives them the funeral that nobody else dared give him. In fact, the man, when Saul was killed, quote-unquote, in battle, that he tried to take his own life after he was wounded, the story that we talked about in the beginning of this book, that there's an Amalekite who comes to David and says, I finished your enemy off. Saul was dying, and so I did mercy killing, and I killed him. What did David do to that Amalekite? Why? Why? because he harmed the lord's anointed. And David said, you can't do that. You can't attack the anointed king. And so David defended Saul in the sense of killing the one who who took Saul's life. When Ishbosheth, David's I'm sorry, Saul's son comes to the throne, David David doesn't go after him in the sense of trying to kill him. They have conflicts with their armies do if you remember. But he leaves Ishbosheth ruling most of the tribes for seven years until Ishbosheth dies. Then David makes the move as the tribes unite behind David. So, as you go through the entire story, it's not David who was pursuing after the kingdom. In fact, if we go all the way back to the very beginning when Saul is king, who said, uh, Samuel said, who was going to take the kingdom from Saul and give it to a man after God's own heart? It wasn't the man. God is going to take the kingdom and give it to somebody else. So Shimei is attacking David for conniving, manipulating, attacking Saul, which he never did and for somehow taking the kingdom from Saul, which David never did. God took it from Saul and gave it to David. And David waited for his time until God put him in the position David never usurped Saul. Fact number one, Shimei is overreacting. Telling Telling part of a falsehood. Now, let's, let's take this thing. You're a son of Belial, which could mean you're promoting false worship. True or false? Did David promote false worship? False. What, what did David promote? Do you remember any of the stories? Please tell me you remember the stories. Okay. What did David do? It was Saul that went after the witch, right? David never, David never consulted with a witch. Saul did that. Shimei's relative. David, on the other hand, he, he was following the law, but Saul was the one who violated the law. He's the one that went in and offered sacrifice, and that's, God, and that's why God said, I'm taking the kingdom away. David, on the other hand, when he became king, he got the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back to Jerusalem so that it became a centerpiece of their worship. David is the one that set up all the different priestly orders to encourage Jehovah worship. David is the one who is writing psalms for them to use in their worship. David is the one that's been gathering all this money to build a temple for God. David never promoted false worship. David only promoted worship of Jehovah. Shimei, you're wrong in that account. So here he is, David's being attacked, and to tempt David further, his bodyguard, the guy in charge of protecting David, he responds, Abishai says, you know, as Shimei's talking, Abishai has an answer for it, verse 9, Abishai the son of Zeruiah said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and I'll take off his head. Okay, so Abishai has an answer to it. And by the way, Abishai's response could be based on the fact that in the Old Testament law, cursed is anyone who curses their leader, their ruler over their nation. So here he is, David is David's got this situation where he's down and out, he's got this guy bad-mouthing him, and his own men are saying, kill him, kill him, let me go and whack him one. And David's response to this whole thing, it's amazing. Now, before I do that, have you ever had people bad talk you? Has it ever happened that somebody has misrepresented you to the rest of the family? That somebody at work has told something about you that isn't true? That somebody is spreading rumors about you? That somebody, that, a friend... Somebody that you trusted, all of a sudden they're telling things that make you look pretty bad. Does that ever happen today that shimmy eyes attack individuals? What do you do? What do you do? And in this case, you know, you have it happen, You're hurt. Do you hurt. Do you feel compelled when somebody's giving, a, don't you feel compelled that you gotta correct it? You've got to get on Facebook. You've got to get on media. You've got to get a, you know, to a pulpit. And you've got to correct everything. Do you, do, you, do you feel like that person I'll never talk to again? That person I want nothing to do with. I'll never go to another family reunion where they go to. I will stay away from that place. I'll have no communication, no contact with them. In fact, let me tell you about them. Or did you ever? Did you get the impulse, impulse at times? Go to their house and let's settle this. Let's settle this like real men. Okay? I'm going to sit at your table and talk to you. Okay, Do you, do you, do you ever have where you, you want to get others rallied against that person? So you speak about that person? What does David do? What does David do? David's response is amazing in this text. The response of David compared to what he did years ago. Years ago, we read a story we talked about where David is falsely accused by Nabal. Nabal, whose name means what? Fool. He falsely accused David. And he didn't owe up to David what David David was due. And David's initial response when he hears how Nabal has attacked him, do you remember what David said he's going to do? What's that? Yeah, he says, get your swords on, get your shields, get your horses. And he takes 400 of his men, and he's riding Pemel towards Nabal's house. And what's David going to do to Nabal? (sniffs) And all of Nabal's household. David wants revenge. Now, let's fast forward to this situation. Does David say, no, Abishai, you're not lopping off his head. I am. Does David say that? No. No, if you've read the next couple of verses, what does David say to Abishai? What do you what are you talking about? Don't no! Let the guy curse, let him alone. Actually, the way David says it is really interesting. Where David says in verse 10, what, I, what have I to do with you, you son of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Behold my son, which came forth of my bowels, he seeks my life. By comparison, how much more uh, can this Benjamite do? Let him alone, let him curse. The Lord hath bidden him. And it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me or requite me good for his cursing this day. Whoa, 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 whoa. David, David, what are you doing? David at this moment, at this time, he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't strike back. He says, just let him alone. This may be of the Lord dealing with me. David showed great growth in responding to personal attacks. Have you? Are you? As, As you go through life and you have family issues, are you showing growth in how you respond to people who say something negative to or about you? Are you maturing in that sense? And I ask my question, how is it that David doesn't kill? Oh, by the way, Shimei says, you're a bloody man, you're a killer. Good thing David wasn't, otherwise he'd be dead for saying it. So what does David do? How does David respond? And i think this through, even though he deserves it, even though David is tired and hurting, and oftentimes we excuse reactions against others in anger, we excuse it because we're tired or we're hangry. David, David is told, others say, kill him, kill him, kill him. Others are saying, strike at him. And in fact, the culture that David lived in, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You can go after him. And, and on top of it, I doesn't shut up. Shimei keeps it up, and keeps it up, and keeps it up. And even though David could do something, now think that through. He could have done something. I I, I make you this observation. It is easier to be patient when there's nothing we can do about the situation. As opposed to, it's harder to be patient when we could do something. Think about trials you face. It is easier to be patient when it's out of your hands. When it's something you could do, it's harder to be patient because you want to do what you can. And so David's, David has this opportunity. My question to you and to me is, how is it? What did David do to practice self-control at this moment when somebody was attacking and hurting him What did he do? Three things that you should do. You should practice. Number one, what David did is instead of attacking, he looked above. He looked above. We already read the verses that will talk about how David is saying, let him alone." the Lord has ordered this. If the Lord requite me, I will get back into the house. What I mean by this is David is recognizing that this is happening because this is the hand of God. This whole thing and David knows it. David knows that what he's doing right now, what he's experiencing, the trial he is in, is because this is the hand of God. How do we know that? How do we know it's actually the hand of God in this rebellion? Because God had predicted this was going to happen when David committed his sin with Bathsheba. Do you remember? The sword shall come in your own house. Somebody, your neighbor, a kinsman, is going to take over your wives and palace idea. So David knows that this is part of the chastening hand of the Lord. That this trial has come to him because of that difficulty. So what does David do? David realizes that some of the bad that happens in his life is because of God working, God chastening, God helping to him to grow. Let me, let me ask you to go with me to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, and observe this thought in Hebrews chapter 12. Would you turn there? Okay, Hebrews chapter 12. This is such an important thought that you and I have to keep in mind. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 where he is writing in this text about how God at times is dealing with us and how God will chasten us at times. In Hebrews chapter 12, i want to read through several different verses here. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, "...for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son that he receives. If you endure chastening, God will deal with uh, with you as with his sons." For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if he be without chastisement, whereof all our partakers, then you're really not his son, you're a bastard and not God's son. Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of the spirits and live? For they verily for a few days, those early years of child training and raising us, they chastened us after their own pleasure. Sometimes they chastened us because they were upset. Sometimes they chastened us because we irritated them. Sometimes they chastened us because we embarrassed them. But God chastens us for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastisement, or correction, for the present seems to be joyous, but hard, grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of what? righteousness unto them that are exercised by it. Wherefore, lift up your hands which hang down and your feeble knees and make corrections, make straight the paths of your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. God is chastening David to mature him. God chastens us for our benefit. David is pausing in this moment and saying this trial, this difficulty that I have is something that I have contributed to it and instead of getting angry and reacting and striking out, I am understanding by looking beyond and above, I'm I'm recognizing this is God's hand in my life. This is God maturing me. God is using Shimei as part of the tool to correct me, to bring me to the point of having a spirit where I am totally yielded to the Lord and not operating by my flesh and my lust or my anger or my emotions and just following and allowing the Lord to work. He's looking above. He's looking above this situation. By looking above, he is learning to accept Without getting angry towards God. Which some people do. Some people when they have people conflicts. Or other trials. They turn and say what are you doing God? Why have you done this to me? Why have you put this person in my life? David doesn't do that. He doesn't attack or accuse God. He accepts that this could be the hand of God using this person to mature him, to test him, to be a trial in his life. And so David is saying, I want God to be in control of the situation, not me. I've taken control of situations with Bathsheba and how I tried to lie and deceive. I've tried that. That doesn't work. I'm going to rely upon the Lord. And if the Lord allows, I will get back to Jerusalem. In fact, when he's talking to the priests, when they are leaving Jerusalem, go back to chapter 15, and they're starting to march out of the city, what happens is some of the priests bring the Ark of the Covenant to go with David, and it says, Lo Zadok also, and all the Levites that were with him, they bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they set down the Ark of the Lord, and Abiathar went up until all the people had done getting out of the city. The king then turns to the priest Zadok, and he says, take the Ark back. Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back again. And he will show me both it and his habitation. And so his point is God is in control. I'm going to let God take care of the situation. I'm going to look above. I'm going to respond by not taking control. I'm going to understand that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Not David. David is looking above and he's responding the right way. By the way, we who live in this era are told to look above. We're to look above, look at Jesus Christ how he responded when people attacked him. And we read in 1 Peter for hereunto we are called, called to do what? To be like Christ because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us a what? An example. An example that we should follow in his steps. He did no sin; neither was there deceit or attack found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, he didn't attack back, and he instead he reviled not. He doesn't return evil for evil, but rather, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to Him, that judges righteously. We are to respond in a Christ-like fashion, the way David did. Look up, look above. Look to the Lord and say, God, how do you want? And it won't happen. It just won't happen to you. If you're not grounded in your walk with the Lord, it won't happen. Icebergs are oftentimes seen throughout the North Atlantic. And as they're flowing, oftentimes there can be a storm. And the wind in the storm is blowing this way, but an iceberg would continue just against the storm. For years, that that caused people to think, what in the world? How come ice storms are going against the wind? Because underneath the water is when most icebergs have their greatest mass. And that mass under the water is in a current. And that current dictates where they go. Not the storm above, but the current below. And since they're lodged in that current... That is the direction they're taking. You need to be lodged in God's walking, walking in his spirit. You need to be lodged in the word of God so that when the storms come, you're not going and being controlled by the storm. You're being controlled by the spirit of God. You're going where God wants you to go. Even if it's against what everybody says. Even if it is contrary to the culture. David was so grounded in the Lord by this time in his life that he is responding by looking above. But not only does he look above, he looks around. He looks around. What I mean by that is this. Is that David, it says in this passage, and starting with verse 11, back in chapter uh, 16, he said, behold, my son, which came forth of my balls, he seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamin? In other words, David's getting perspective. He's looking at the whole situation. And as he's looking at the situation, he's recognizing keeping it in perspective. Keeping and putting it all in understanding. His biggest problem isn't Shimei. The biggest issue here is not Shimei, his biggest problem is his son. His son's after his life. What this guy does by casting sticks and stones, that's nothing compared to what my son wants to do. So I've got a bigger issue to deal with than this guy right here. My bigger problem is dealing with my son and getting things taken and put back in control. And so he not only does that, but he also considers the source of the criticism. The source of the attack. As you go through the text, David understands why Shimei is upset. He knows Shimei. It's going to come up later on that he calls Shimei by his family title. He knows he's a part of Saul's family. He knows he's a relative. And so David is considering the source. He's looking at his circumstances and saying this isn't the biggest issue. And he's looking and saying... You know, from Shimei's perspective, Shimei can, he's saying things wrong, but I understand why Shimei is upset. And David's looking at it from his perspective, considering the source and how that happens. And, folk, doesn't that, isn't that a wise way of responding to people? Is pausing and consider the source? Why are they doing what they're doing to me? Maybe they're doing it and they're doing it wrong, but. Just, just maybe there's a reason why they're doing what they did. David Simmons, and I do, we shared this with you before, he uh, played in professional football for the Cardinals as well as Dallas and sometime for New York Giants. And when he, when he played, he grew up in a, as, a, as a player and he, he really strove to get his dad's approval. And his dad, who was a military man, his dad was this strict and just real, real firm type of a guy. And he says, when I was growing up in my home, he says, my dad never complimented. My dad only criticized. My dad told me years later, I was just trying to bring out the best in you. But he says, my dad was always negative, was always cutting me down. For Christmas, when he says, when I was eight years old, my dad bought a bike for me for Christmas because I really wanted a bike. But my dad totally disassembled the bike. And he put it in a box with all the parts and I opened it up excited and there was my bike but it was totally disassembled. And my dad said to me, put it together if you want it. And he said, so here I am an eight year old trying to put together a bike. And his dad just shook his head, shook his head after a day and tears and crying. The next day after Christmas his dad said, I knew you couldn't do it. You're just too stupid. And his dad put the bike together for him. He said it didn't get any better as he was growing older. He started to go off for sports. And he says, You know how most players would get excited, would get nervous before a big game? He said, I never did. I got nervous at the end of the game. Because after every game that we played, he said we would go home, and my dad, who had been at the game, he would go over every play and where I made a mistake. And he would drill it into me that I'm not good, I'm not good, I've got to improve, I've got to improve. So when he got to be a senior in high school, he was getting college scholarships. He chose the University of Georgia for one reason. It was the farthest away from his dad. He wanted to get away from his dad. So he chose that to get away from his dad. But while he was at the university, he came under the the teaching of the gospel through some other students. He got born again. And he thought, I've got to reach out to my dad. Well, about this time, he's trying, and there's still a lot of animosity. In fact, he got drafted. In the second round that year. That's, a, that's a pretty high draft, folk. He's second round. Now, the St. Louis drafted him, and their first round pick was Joe Namath. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Okay. So he was the number one choice. On the beginning of the second round, David Simmons was the number one choice by that same team. So he was, he was drafted in a pretty high round of the draft. He called his dad so excited that he got chosen you know, in the second round. His dad's response, what's it feel like being number two? He said it would would go on, even though he tried to reach out. He said, but as I grew in my faith, I really determined I'm going to show love towards somebody who is unlovely. And I worked at it, worked at it, worked at it. He said, it took years, but I finally, finally broke through when my dad told me about his own childhood. Never had done it before. Never had done it before. But his dad said, my dad was really bad. You never talked about grandpa before. I didn't want to. I wanted to forget my dad. They'd grown up in the far west, up in the areas where there was a lot of lumberjacks and Simmons' grandfather, his dad's dad, was a lumberjack. Rugged guy. He's an alcoholic. He had a vicious temper. One time his pickup wouldn't start so he took a sledgehammer and destroyed the pickup totally in his anger. He would regularly beat his son, David Simmons' dad. And so David, for the first time, had learned that his dad grew up in an extremely abusive situation. Didn't excuse what his dad did, but it helped him to understand why he did his dad did what he did. His dad didn't know better. Once his dad got to know Christ... In his latter years, their relationship became like this. You see, at times, it helps us to step back and learn the circumstances, learn the perspective, to get to know why is somebody doing what they did. And so David does that. And by the way, getting perspective, is there some truth in what Shimei is saying? Has David killed? Has he killed innocent people? Who? Uriah. Yeah. There's a, there's a smidgen of truth in it. Some of it's false. Is David, by virtue of that, a bloody man, could the son of Belial, referring to somebody who's shown poor character, could that have applied to David in that circumstance? Yes. Yes. And the, the, the sad story is there is a smidgen of truth in the criticism. And how often do we respond, don't you dare criticize me. I don't want to hear any criticism. And yet there might be a smidgen of truth in it. Yes? Could happen. And so David, here he is, David is learning to look around and he's responding with correction and he's, he's evaluating. So when, when you look around this week, Let me suggest that this is how you you might apply it. You've got something going wrong. You're really upset. You come home, it's happened at work. You come home, and if you're not careful, who do you take it out on? Family. They're not the real problem. They're not the ones who are the real issue here. But often we react against others which really aren't the problem person. It could be your family. It could be a situation that you've got a problem with a coworker. You've got a problem with, with a situation there with somebody else or the boss. It's not your wife's fault or your husband's fault. It's not your kid's fault. Maybe, maybe all of a sudden bills are there and they're piling up and you feel the pressure of the bills or the trial. It doesn't, it's not worthwhile attacking, being angry with, accusing your family, your spouse, your brothers, your sisters, your parents. It may be you've got to make some changes the way you handle your income. It may be you need to address some other problem. Stop taking it out on others. Get the perspective proper here. Okay, it happens all the time. It happens where people will go to a church and all of a sudden they have a problem with one person in the church. That person sat in their pew. That person didn't greet them in the grocery store. Whatever that, that, it's usually minor, whatever it is, all of a sudden everybody there is bad. That's not perspective. That's an overreaction. So keep perspective. Also, when their criticisms come, pause before you overreact and look and say, is there some smidgen of truth? Instead of me getting upset with Deb because of she's saying I need to be neater in the house. Maybe, just maybe, instead of getting angry and trying to attack back, maybe I should stop and say, do I, do I leave the socks laying around? Do I not hang up things? Am I a slob? And the answer is no. Okay, but <laughs> just maybe we should pause and we should look at it. In fact, remember this, that even though somebody may be accusing you and criticizing you, it is nothing compared to what you actually deserve from God. We deserve much more more from God than somebody calling us names. We deserve damnation because of our sin. So what they give me is nothing compared to what I really deserve. Keeping perspective, looking around. It's something that we need to strive for. <laughs> there's a there's a true story, but they built a statue at uh, the border of Chile and Argentina, and uh, it's at the border up in the Andes, and it's called Christ of the Andes. But what happened is I'm going to get it backwards. The the Chileans, I believe the statue is facing this way towards Chile, and the Argentin Argentinian, I'm sorry. The statue faces towards Argentina. That's correct. Some of the Chileans got very upset about the statue. Jesus' back is to us. Why is his back to us? It became an international incident. They were so upset until one newspaper guy put it in perspective. He wrote and he said, the reason the statue is facing the Argentinians is they probably need Christ to watch them more than he needs to watch us. (laughs) perspective, perspective. David, David looked above, he looked around, he looked ahead. Let me wrap up with this. That David as he's going, he is looking ahead in this sense that David makes the comment he says, maybe the Lord will requite me. He will reward me. He will, because of the way I respond in my affliction maybe if I do good to Shimei God will do good to me. Is there a factor to this? Is there a truth to this, that how we treat others impacts how God treats us? There is a fact to that. There is a truth to this. In fact, you all know that in your Bible we get rewarded for service, how we serve the Lord. Do you know that there's also crowns given, rewards given for how you handle sufferings? We read, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you, and he says, and say manner of evil against you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, because great is your reward in heaven. We read, Blessed is the man that endures temptation when he is tried and he passes the trial. He'll receive the crown of life. We read, if we suffer, we will reign with him. We read in scripture, fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. You will have tribulation ten days, but you who are faithful unto death, I will give you a crown of life. So there is a reward that he says, in our light affliction, which is but a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God rewards for how you respond. He even says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if so be that you suffer with him, that you may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. What glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? But if, when you have done well and you suffer, this is acceptable unto God. He's pleased by that. So David's looking and saying, God may be pleased if I don't overreact, if I am self-control. In fact, God may even use this to bring Shimei to, re, to say, I'm sorry. If we were to jump ahead and go to the rest of this story, we see what happens, that when David comes back to the throne, Shimei is one of the first people that meets him and says, forgive me, forgive me. This man who was critical, he asked David to spare his life. The second time David has opportunity to get even with Shimei, David doesn't. David extends forgiveness. He withholds that attack on him. Even though Shimei could deserve it. Even though Shimei may not be, be, he may be playing David. He may not be totally honest when he comes and says, yeah, you know, David, I'm really, really sorry. He may be just doing it politically. But David doesn't have to be the one to determine Shimei's inner thoughts. He has to be concerned about what I do. And David, reads, David responds by forgiving him. Can I, can I bring it together with this? You who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, you who say that you are his disciples, why, why do we get so angry at things and other people? Why do we get so upset when when we don't have to? And you won't have to if you do this. If you look above, if you look around, and if you look ahead. But you say, it's so hard. Remember this passage? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can be a person this week that doesn't have to fly off the handle. You can be a person that doesn't say things that upsets others just because they upset you. You don't have to be the person that starts having the conflicts in your home. You don't have to be that way. You don't have to do it. And if somebody has hurt you, said something to you or about you, you should respond like David did. You should forgive that person. You should forgive that person. You should be willing to forgive them. They may come like Shimei, and you don't know if they're really, really genuine in asking, but you should be willing to forgive them. You should have that spirit that David had that as he looked around and he said, I need to do this. You have a calling from God to be tenderhearted, kind, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. How Peter says, should I forgive just seven times? And Jesus says, forgive seven times. I say to you, you forgive 70 times seven times. And then Jesus adds, if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you. If you've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, you are to be forgiving others who hurt you. Not holding a grudge. Not distancing. Not having no communication, no contact. Not being an individual that says, I want, I'll never go where you're, where you're going to be at. You're to be forgiving. You are called by Christ to be a forgiver because you've been forgiven. And you can because of what Christ has done for you. A lady who was in the area of Kenya working doing missions work, this gal heard the gospel from the missionary. She was the tribal, uh, the wife of the tribal chieftain. And he was steeped in his paganism. But she was really curious about what these believers were doing. So one night, with her husband not knowing, she went over towards this nearby village and she sat in the church service where they were preaching the gospel. When she came home, She told her husband where she had been. Oh, he was angry. Then she added on to it that she had become a believer in Jesus Christ. And would you please go with me to the service the next night and hear about this Jesus? He was so angry. He was so mad. He forbade her from ever going to that type of a service again. Never bring up the name of Jesus. You stay stay away from those Christians. Have nothing to do with them. Well, she was so compelled by the Spirit after she had gotten saved the day before, she wanted to learn more, so she went the next night. When her husband realized that she was gone, he figured she was at that church service. So what he did is he took off after her, and he was going to correct her. Well, by the time he had taken off, the church service had ended, and he met her in one of the paths in that jungled area halfway between their home and that village and she was so excited about what she had learned she started telling him he got so angry he beat her he beat her into unconsciousness he thought he had killed her and he rolled her body off the path into some brush he went home never said anything to anybody but the next day he got a little bit curious what happened to her did she die did some animal get her what, what about so he went to that spot and he looked where, she, where he had rolled her and she wasn't there, but he looked a little bit closer and she had crawled a little bit further into the bush. And when he opened the bush, there she was. And he got mad once again. He said, are you going to give up this Jesus? What good has he done you? What can he do for you now? And she looked up at him. She smiled and said, he can help me to forgive you. That's what Christ can do for you to help you to forgive those who have attacked. Father, help us. Help us to be people that not just hear the word, but do the word. Help us to forgive others. Help us not to react and be so angry and to be so impulsive, to guard our words, guard our temper, guard our reaction to drivers, to family members to co-workers, to politicians who irritate us to no end. Help us to be individuals that are cautious, careful, that we look above, we look around, we look ahead. And help us to portray Christ. If you're here this morning and your heads are bowed and eyes are closed and you do not know Christ as your Savior, it's going to be tough for you to forgive anybody until you get the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And you can have that forgiveness, the forgiveness of any and all sins. In fact, we have staff members who are at the side door of the auditorium, the right side of our auditorium. There's a set of double doors. They are there right now, willing to talk to anyone here in this room who doesn't know for sure that they've been forgiven and have eternal life. They're willing to show you from the Bible what you need to do to have that forgiveness this day, to know you're on your way to heaven. I'm going to continue praying here for a few more seconds. If you would like to go and talk to one of those individuals in private, While I'm praying, get up and walk over there. And they will show you from the Bible how you can be sure you're going to heaven. That's what you need to do this day. Father, I pray, help each and everyone here to know of the forgiveness that Christ offers, to experience it. Help us, everyone here, to express that forgiveness that Christ has given us to others who have hurt, who will hurt, may upset us in these days ahead. Help us to magnify Christ in whose name I pray. Amen.